Well, ladies and gentlemen and toothless Ozarkians, <laughs> uh, trying to find out what the what are the people who live in the Ozarks called? I guess Ozarkian is the, the closest I can come to. Couldn't find an answer to that question online. So welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Pastor Eli James here, Voice of Christian Israel, September 13, 2020, uh, going solo today uh, because uh, Pastor Martins uh, can't make it. And uh, the, the topic for today, you've probably seen some of the links I just put in, is going to be about the, the eunuch that was baptized by St. Philip in the book of Acts. And I'm going to determine the race of that eunuch. Now, first of all, we, we are not Judeo-Christians here. We don't believe in the Talmudic Jewish lie that the three sons of Noah were different races. They teach that Japheth, uh, Japheth was an Oriental, Shem was a, a white man or an Adamite, and uh, Ham was black. That's what they teach, and a lot of Judeo-Christians believe that garbage. But there's no way... Uh, they were Adamites. Uh, to be an Adamite means to show blood in the face. Adam, Seth, Enoch, and the entire lineage, uh, all the way down to Yahshua, Messiah, and us Caucasian Israelites today are the Adamic race. And there's no other people mentioned in scripture other than the Adamic race, except our enemies, the Edomites, who are not Adamic at all. Okay, they are children of the devil. Uh, through, By the way, uh, I just came up with a great slogan yesterday, and that is, whatever the problem is, two-seed-line identity is the answer. Okay, two-seed-line identity answers all the questions of history and the Bible and all racial and cultural matters because we are the descendants of Adam and the descendants of the 12 tribes of Israel. As, as Michael Sweet and I discussed this morning on Bloodlines, uh, proving the dolmens were created by our people and uh, those dolmens were predicted by Jeremiah that our people should establish these dolmens, which are basically mounds of rocks, some, uh, some complicated, some not complicated. But uh, we find uh, that these dolmens are in exact migration routes of the 12 tribes of Israel, and even in some cases uh, pre-Israelite Hebrews, okay, and pre-Israelite Adamites. So uh, it, all it all goes to prove that our migrational thesis, namely that the European nations were founded by the 12 tribes of Israel, the so-called Caucasians, are absolutely right on the money, and there is no other explanation for all of these. Yes, and perfect was, uh, sorry, Noah was perfect in his generations. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, and of course, Abraham uh, made sure that Isaac got a, a white woman for his wife, namely Rebecca. He was not to race mix. The instructions are very clear. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 7 and... Uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah make it very clear that the Israelites are not to intermarry outside of their own race, outside of their own people. The Bible is replete with such references, but they're not mentioned by the Jews, who are the most race-mixed people on the earth, nor the Judeo-Christians, who believe all these Jewish lies. Okay, so, uh, and so we, we have dispensed with this myth that uh, the... the 
three sons of Noah were different races. Absolutely, pure, absolute nonsense. That uh, you know, it can't even be true genetically, because uh, you, you never see any black kids coming out of a white womb unless that woman inter- intermarried with a black person. Okay, and uh, there were no black per- people among the European race until they uh, began bringing black slaves into Europe. It started. Yes, it makes absolutely no sense. And uh, black slaves intermarrying, primarily in France, is where that started during the French Revolution. The French started uh, preaching this uh, liberty, equality, fraternity, which is Freemasonic uh, propaganda. And uh, we're living under this uh, uh, Freemasonic propaganda even today, right? And so uh, I'm going to first quote the passage from from, uh, Acts. And it's Acts 8.26, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Verse 26 states, And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, an eunuch of great authority under Kandaki, or Candace, as we pronounce it in English, Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship. Now, why would he come to Jerusalem to worship if he is the treasurer of Ethiopia? Now, remember uh, from previous shows that we've done on the subject, Mike and I talked about the Arabian Kush, which was to the east of Egypt. And that was the the Cushites, and we found out that Jethro was a descendant of Abraham and Keturah. So uh, Moses' wife from uh, from that area was another Shemite, because she's a descendant of Abraham and Keturah. She was not black, as many people try to falsely argue. Now the African Cush was also settled by the same people, the Cushites, who were the descendants of Ham. Okay? So, you have all these Hamites in Egypt. The Mitzrayim are the Hamites that settled in Egypt. And the Cushites are the ones who settled in Ethiopia, just south of Egypt. These were all white people. Every last one of them were white people. And I'm going to demonstrate to you that Candace, queen of Ethiopia, was in fact a white woman, not a black woman, uh, contrary to the garbage propaganda that we're we're being forced to listen to today, every time we turn around. All right, so, and first of all, how many black nations ever had a a treasurer? had enough wealth to have a treasure. So either the blacks were a great people once upon a time, way back when, and lost all their greatness and became, uh, uh, what's the word, Uh, uh, hunter-gatherers, devolved down into hunter-gatherers, which would be an incredible thing to to happen, because it didn't happen. They've always been hunter-gatherers. And no matter how hard we try to bring them up to our level, they can't do it because genetically they're hunter-gatherers, period. Okay. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot reading Isaiah the prophet. Okay, so this Ethiopian eunuch... Now, uh, a eunuch is typically a castrated man who is in charge 
of the harem. So, and he's castrated so that he can't, uh, you know, uh, have Ill, Ill, illegitimate children via the harem. And, but uh, the leader of Ethiopia at this time was a woman. I think we're going to identify exactly which Candace, and Candace is a title, not the name. It has become a name in English tradition. But Kandaki, the Greek pronunciation of the term, was a title, and I'm going to give you the names of several queens who were potential, potentially the queen of Ethiopia at the time, or the Kandake of Ethiopia at the time. So he was sitting in his chariot reading Isaiah. So probably had some business there on behalf of Ethiopia, and that's why he was uh, coming to Jerusalem. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to his chariot. And Philip ran thither to him, and heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I, except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. So so Philip and, and uh, this eunuch were sitting in the chariot, and he was explaining scripture to him. The place of the scripture which he read was this, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, And like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And of course this is the prophecy in Isaiah of the Messiah, how he will be humiliated before the people, and that he will hardly utter a word of protest during his trial. So this is a direct reference to the Messiah. And now, why would a black Ethiopian have any concern about Israel and the, the prophet for Israel? Is it possible that this Ethiopian, even though he was the treasurer for the Ethiopian queen, is it possible he was an Israelite? Doesn't matter, he, he could have been a Hamite, but he was definitely white. There's absolutely no doubt that he was white. There were no blacks in this time period who could even read, let alone build a society, such as the one that existed in Mero. Mero is the city, the headquarter city of the African Kush at this time. Continuing, and the eunuch answered, answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself or of some other man? Now, of course, we know the answer. I wonder how many Judeo-Christians know the answer. (laughs) Of course, he was speaking of Messiah. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Which would be quite incredible for an ignorant black African <laughs> to say. But of course, this guy was highly intelligent because he was the treasurer. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both to the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come out out of the water, the spirit of Yahweh caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, 
and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. So, not, not only was this a, a tremendous event for the eunuch, but Philip was translated away from the site, picked up, uh, beam me up, Scotty, and set me down in, in uh, Azotus. So, a very miraculous happening here. And so now we have to answer the question, what race was this eunuch? Was he a black African, or was he perchance a Shemite or a Hamite of the Adamic species? Okay, that's the question we have to answer. And first of all, I'm going to cover, first of all, and I put the post in here, nationalpost.com. King Tut's DNA more European than Egyptian. What does Egyptian mean? Well, Egyptian means Mitzrayim. He was a Hamite. Hamite, son of Noah. He was an Adamite, just as Shem was an Adamite, just as Japheth was an Adamite. This is how the Bible has to be understood. So in this post, you here is a recreation of of King, King Tut, his face, his facial features, which, although they give him quite large lips, he is clearly Caucasian-looking. And the result of this genetic study, it says, King Tut DNA more European than Egyptian geneticists by Alice Bagjian. London, up to 70% of British men and half of all Western European men are related to the Egyptian pharaoh Tutankhamun, geneticists in Switzerland said. Surprise, surprise. Of course, we, we, we're not surprised by this. Scientists at Zurich-based DNA Genealogy Center, Igenia, reconstructed the DNA profile of the boy pharaoh who ascended the throne at the age of nine, his father Akhenaten, his father Akhenaten and grandfather Amenhotep III, based on a film that was made for the Discovery Channel. The results showed that the at King Tut belonged to a genetic profile group known as haplogroup R1B1. That's white, folks. Caucasian. R1B1A2, to which more than 50% of all men in Western Europe belong, indicating that they share a common ancestor. But this statement is misleading, because they're giving a haplotype here, R1B1A2. But if they simply stopped at R1B1, this would incorporate 95% of all Caucasian males. Okay, So it's way more than 50% that he belonged to. Among modern-day Egyptians, this haplogroup contingent is below 1%. Get that? Below 1%. So there's no way King Tut was a quote-unquote Egyptian in the modern sense of the word, nor was he a black African. He was 100% Adamite. Quote, It was very interesting to discover that he belonged to a genetic group in Europe there were many possible groups in Egypt that the DNA could have belonged to, said Roman Schultz, director of the Agonia Center. 
Around 70% of Spanish and 60% of Frenchmen also belong to the genetic group of the pharaoh who ruled Egypt more than 3,000 years ago. And if they w- would simply confine it to R1B1, uh, they would find that uh, he's related to over 90% of all Caucasians. Quote, we think the common ancestor lived in the Caucasus about 9,500 years ago, Schultz told Reuters. Is there any doubt that King Tut was a white man? No, there isn't. Continuing, there's a couple more sentences here. It is estimated that the earliest migration of haplogroup R1B1A2 into Europe began with the spread of agriculture in 7000 BC, according to Igenia. Yeah, because Adam invented agriculture. He was the first farmer, and he was the first uh, person to name species. However, the geneticists were not sure how Tutankhamun's paternal lineage came to Egypt from its region of origin. Well, I mean, you're talking of the Middle East, <laughs> Mesopotamia. That's where, that's where agriculture was invented. The center is now using DNA testing to search for the closest living relatives of King Tut. Okay, so it's very clear that King Tut came from Mesopotamia, from the area in northern Turkey where Noah's boat landed. That's where Tutankhamun came from. Absolutely no doubt about this. Okay? So, again, we in identity are so far ahead of all the other uh, commentators, it ain't funny. Okay, a Bavarian man says, I know Roman Schultz. (laughs) Yeah, uh, say hello to him for me. (laughs) Explain to him where King Tut came from. Right? The area where agriculture was invented by Adam. Okay. <laughs> oh, Nimble Horse says the link is a black he- Jew brew page. <laughs> okay, that's quite possible. In doing the research for this program, the vast majority of links are by black uh, Hebrews. By black Hebrews, because they're trying to commandeer the internet and drown out the uh, you know the, the the truth about the the real Hebrews, the real Israelites. Okay, so next I'm going to access the book on, uh, I'm sorry, the site on Elephantine Island, the completepilgrim.com, Elephantine Temple, and the fact is the Israelites were as far south as the African Kush in the days of Solomon. So not only were there Hamite Mitzrayim and Hamite Kush, Along the River Nile, there were Israelites. Elephantine Temple by Howard Kramer, Aswan, Egypt. The Israelite temple on Elephantine Isle in the south of Egypt is one of the least known and most poorly understood important Judahite monuments in the world. From the time of the destruction of Solomon's temple in 586 BC until its reconstruction, the Elephantine Temple was a critical center of Judahite religious life and priestly activity. The origins of the temple on Elephantine Isle are shrouded in mystery, as as is its strange and inexplicable decline a few centuries later. Little remains of the ancient site and nothing of the old Judahite community. However, thanks to a large cache of records called the Elephantine Papyri, 
There has been renewed interest in the enigmatic temple in recent years, and the isle is finding its way onto the itinerary of many visitors into Egypt. Now, you probably note that Haile Selassie and a lot of the, the people who call themselves Ethiopians today have a lot of white blood in them. They're clearly the Ethiopian blacks have way more white in them than most of the blacks in the rest of the continent. That's because Ethiopia was peopled by blacks, I mean, I'm sorry, peopled by whites of Ham and Shem, especially Israelites of the house of Judah, who actually built a, uh, a replica of Solomon's temple on Elef- Elephantine Island. Okay, history. How and when a Judean or Israelite community was founded on this isle in the midst of the Nile River on Egypt's southern border is largely a mystery. It has been suggested that the first arrivals were mercenaries who had been recruited by the Egyptian pharaohs for their wars against Ethiopia and the Nubian tribes of East Africa. The community existed by the 7th century B.C., and this is right around the time of the migrations of the ten northern tribes into Europe, but may in fact have been two or three centuries older. It is equally possible that the early Elephantine community was founded by refugees from the Assyrian conquest of Israel, as I just suggested, in which case it may have consisted primarily of Samaritans. Refugees from Judea probably came here as well following the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem in 586 BC. So again, in tracing the migrations of our people, our people got around in all different directions, and one of the ways that the Judahites of Jerusalem would have fled from uh, the potential Assyrian conquest over, uh, uh, actually the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem, would have been to the south. Why would they go south? Because they would have fled to their distant relations, the the Cushites, that is the Ethiopians, of the, the Nile River. Or, but this was at the very southern tip of Egypt, so they could have gone there to associate with their Hamite friends, the Mitzrayim. Okay? So this is true history. All of these people were white. Okay? So uh, in, this, in this area, there was uh, a major city called Mero. And Mero was the capital city of uh, the Ethiopia, the Ethiopian Kush in these days. And so from ancient history, King Ergomenus and the Meroitic Empire. King Ergomenus and the Meroitic Empire, ancient Nubia, kingdom of Kush. And they have a video here, but it, it, it pictures black people, <laughs> which they were not black. King Ergomenus, also known as King Archimani I, uh, reigned 295 to 275 BC, was the greatest king of the city of Mero, kingdom of Cush, located in modern-day Sudan, who broke free from Egyptian dominance to help direct a wholly distinct culture. As I said, they were Cushites. They were Cushites, but they were Ethiopian Cushites, not Mitzrayim. So the Cushites were descendants of a different son of Ham from Mitzrayim, and his name was Cush. And uh, it broke free from Egyptian dominance to help direct a wholly distinct culture. 
The city of Mero is cited by many ancient writers, Herodotus among them, as an almost fabled city of wealth and mystery, and scholars credit Ergomenes for establishing the culture which fostered such prosperity and lay the groundwork for later Meroitic kings and queens to build on. Okay, so this is the ancestor of many of the queens of Mero, who we're going to get into now, and I'm going to be referring to an article. This is uh, from Wiki Didactic, and the uh, URL is way too long for me to uh, read out, but I put the link in the chat room. Wiki Didactic, and the title of this article is The Candaces of Mero, Seshat Ancient Origins. The Candaces of Mero. Okay, so we're talking about the queens. Yes, <laughs> there was. <laughs> yeah, this is a convoluted history because historians have made it convoluted. Okay. Yeah, and uh, the, many of the blacks of Africa have intermarried with other peoples, especially the Kushites, who were the furthest south of the Hamitic people. But the Hamitic people were certainly white, not black. And the article has this to say. This is by, okay, Definition and Origins by Joshua J. Mark, published on 19 March 2018. Now, the initial uh, profile here of, I'm not sure which queen this is, or Kandake, or Candace this is, but the lips are kind of thick, but the nose and eyes suggest a, a, a white woman. And we'll see, we'll have more images to follow in this article, which prove conclusively that the queen, who was active in the days of the Ethiopian eunuch, roughly, you know, this was right after the crucifixion, uh, the, the book of Acts, most of it was written right after, and for the early uh, chapters were written in the same year, 33 A.D., right after the crucifixion, because uh, the, the feast of, uh, uh, what do you call it, right after the crucifixion, was uh, in, in the midsummer, was uh, uh, practiced right that same year. Okay, Pentecost. The feast of Pentecost was the same year as the crucifixion, right afterwards. And so th this must have generated a lot of interest in the entire Mesopotamian era. Now remember, in Genesis chapter 15, verses 18 to the end, Yahweh gives to Abraham a prophecy that the people of Israel will occupy the entire area from the river Euphrates to the river of Egypt, obviously meaning the Nile. And when Jesus walked the earth, indeed, the Israelites occupied this entire area. There were Israelites in in Alexandria, Egypt. There were obviously Israelites down in the, what's today called the Sudan, down the Nile River, who created the agriculture of the Nile River. Was it blacks or was it Cushites? We'll find out very, very shortly. We'll find out. So, the Kandakis of Mero were the queens of the kingdom of Cush, who ruled from the city of Mero 
circa 284 BC to 314 AD, a number of whom ruled independently, circa 170 BC to 314, in what is now Sudan. The title Kandake, or Candace, is the Latinized version of the term Kentaki or Kandaki in Meroitic, and may mean queen regent or queen mother, but could also mean royal woman. Although the term seems to have originally referred to the mother of the king from around 170 BC, it was also used to designate a female monarch who reigned independently. The queens making up the Candaces of Mero were the following. Shana Dakete. Shana Dakete. She started a group called Shanana. The Amanirenus, Amanirenus, 40 to 10 BC. Amanishaketo, 10 BC to 1 AD. Amanitori, 1 to 25. Amanitere, 25 to 41. This is the woman, I believe, was the queen of Ethiopia in the days of the Ethiopian eunuch. Amanatetere. And Amanakatashan, after the uh, Amanatetere. And Malakorobar, from 266 to 283 AD. And Lahideamani, 306 AD to 314 AD. A Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, is mentioned in the Bible when the Apostle Philip meets a eunuch of great authority under her reign and converts him to Christianity. Now, it's a little bit of a stretch to say that he was converted to Christianity because Christianity was just getting started. Paul and the Apostles were having great difficulty converting the house of Judah, let alone the... uh, the dispersed Greeks, dispersed dispersed Israelites in the Greco-Roman world. Okay, so it's a bit of a stretch to say he was converted, even though he was baptized. And then he had to go back to the Ethiopian Cush and resume being the treasurer for the Kandake. You know, would, uh, could he do this in secret? And what else could he learn? Uh, you know, obviously he was enough of an Adamite to be interested and was familiar enough with the scriptures and with Israelite history that he had an interest in the Messiah. Just like the people, like the uh, Parthians from the east, who were Israelites, and remember the prophecy said the Israelites would be in the territory, would pretty much command and own the territory from the river Euphrates all the way to the river of Egypt. Well, here we are. So it's no surprise that you'll find Israelites in the, in the Nile and uh, Israelites in Parthia. No surprise whatsoever. This fulfills prophecy. So, the, in this passage, as in other ancient works mentioning Kandaki, the royal title has often been confused with a personal name. And actually, the King James translators uh, treat it as if it was a personal name. Prior to C. 284 B.C., Kings ruled Cush from Mero, but the king Ergomenes, who we just talked about, also known as Archimani, instituted a number of reforms, and among these seems to be the elevation of royal women to the position of queen. The title Kentake appears prior to the to Ergomenes' reign, 
but there is no evidence of women reigning alongside a king, only of a royal woman who was the king's mother. Following his reign, however, the title often refers to a female monarch. Male rulers follow Ergomenes in succession and seem to have had queens who co-ruled or exerted significant influence. But the queen Kandaki, Shana Dakete, around 170 BC, reigned independently, and so did a number of women after her. Mero flourished as the capital of the kingdom of Cush between 750 BC and 350 AD, roughly a thousand years, and became legendary as a city of fabulous wealth. Now, how many black built the really... Even today, there aren't any cities built by blacks. The cities that blacks inhabit in Africa today were built by white people and then abandoned as the, as the colonies left Africa and the Jewish banker colonists took over and the Jewish banker colonists handed these cities over to blacks, these countries over to blacks, just as is pertaining to South Africa today. So nothing has changed Blacks still can't, they can't even run a McDonald's, let alone build a country. Continuing with this article. The city began to decline due to overuse of the land and resources and had already passed its peak when it was invaded by the Aksumites from the kingdom of Aksum, located in present-day Ethiopia, Eritrea, in 330 AD and sacked. It was abandoned 20 years later and 350 A.D., and the title of Kandaki vanishes from the historical record afterwards, and so would history. <laughs> and so would the history of Marrow vanish from then. Okay, now, let's get into the rise of Marrow and Ergomenes. Marrow was originally an administrative center south of the Kushite capital city of Napata. In 590 B.C., Napata was sacked by the Egyptian king Sametichus II, and the capital was moved to Mero. Napata had been heavily influenced by Egyptian culture and religion, as the entire kingdom of Cush was initially. Remember, they were Cushites. They were sons of Ham. So they would have been blood kin, sons of Ham. As the entire kingdom of Cush was initially. So the entire kingdom of Cush was initially of Egyptian culture, because they were all Hamites. Due to close contact through trade and blood, and Egypt's repeated military campaigns in the region. This same paradigm was held to at Mero, where official documents were written in Egyptian. The gods who appeared in the temples were Egyptian. Art was created in Egyptian styles. Kings were depicted as Egyptian pharaohs, and their tombs were pyramids. So if anything... Cush, the Ethiopian Cush, was a carbon copy of Egypt. So you would expect white people to retain uh, leadership in Cush, just as they did in Egypt. The city was already thriving before it became the capital of Cush, but afterwards its wealth would become legendary. Now, listen very carefully and see if it's believable that black people could accomplish this. Large fields yielded abundant crops, which were easily transported up and down the nearby Nile in trade. 
Hunters stalked prey such as leopards and elephants whose skins and tusks were then traded upriver to Egypt. The principal industry, however, was ironworking, and Meroitic tools and weapons became highly sought after and commanded a high price. What we know of African culture in Africa was they had not invented the wheel, had never built more than a one-story hut. This is not a black country, folks. This is a white country run by Hamites. Uh, Ham's son, Cush. There's no, not even today, are there any black nations that export grain and are great at metallurgy and ironworking. They do stock elephants, though, <laughs> and kill them for their tusks to sell them on the black market. But that's the only similarity. I repeat, that's the only similarity between Cush and Black Africa. The kings of the city regulated trade, and it is possible that they followed a model similar to Egypt's in which taxes and money from trade went to the government, which then provided resources to the people. The iron industry boomed not only because of the expert craftsmen in the city. Uh, are you aware of any black expert craftsmen in uh, metallurgy? The iron industry boomed because of the expert craftsmen in the city, but also the abundant natural resources of the enormous forests surrounding Meroe. What happened to these forests? Well, I think the Sahara Desert encroached. Wood was required for the furnaces to smelt the iron, and also in the production of charcoal, and these furnaces burned hot on a daily basis. Scholar Kevin Shillington notes, quote, To this day, huge mounds of waste slag from their smelting furnaces rise up alongside the modern railway to bear witness to the enormous iron output of the ancient kingdom of Meroe. Iron provided the farmers and hunters of Meroe with superior tools and weapons. The development and use of iron was thus partly responsible for the very success, growth, and wealth of the Meroitic kingdom. Has any black country or group ever accomplished anything like this, even in modern times? Of course, the answer is no. When Ergomenus came to the throne in 295 B.C., Meroe had already been prospering for centuries, but his reforms would only improve upon the city's success. According to the historian Diodorus Siculus, 1st century B.C., Ergomenus had studied Greek philosophy. Are there any black Africans today who study Greek philosophy <laughs> and was not inclined to blindly follow the religious tradition of his people, whatever that was. It was probably some form of Hamitic ritual. Some of it may have been borrowed from Israel. Among these traditions was the practice of the priests of Amun choosing the monarch, setting a span for that monarch's reign, and deciding when the king should die for the good of the people and make way for a successor. Talk about copying Egypt, copying Mitzrayim, who we just proved to you. King Tutankhamun was a Caucasian man who had red hair and blue eyes and white skin. 
Ergomenus broke the power of the priests of Amun and initiated further reforms to distance Mero from Egyptian influence. The cult of Amun had been a powerful political force in Egypt for millennia and exerted the same kind of influence over the kings of Cush. At Napata, in fact, the Egyptian pharaoh Tutmos III built the temple of Amun, which would become the most important religious site in the kingdom for centuries. As in Egypt, the priesthood seems to have been tax-exempt, and so were able to accrue significant wealth and influence. Ergomenes broke the priest's power through direct action, not legislation, by arriving at the temple at Napata with an armed force and slaughtering them all. Hmm, that gives me the idea what we should do with the banksters. He then discarded the tradition of the priesthood's influence over the king, though maintaining the cult of Amun, and initiated further reforms to distance Mero from Egyptian influence. The gods, though still bearing some evidence of Egyptian culture, begin to appear as indigenous deities during his reign. Pyramids take on a uniquely Meroitic style of architecture. Kings and their queens appear in Meroitic attire, and the art of the period shifts away from Egyptian to a distinctly indigenous style. So they essentially rebelled from Egyptian culture. Most importantly, Egyptian hieroglyphics disappear during Ergomena's reign to be replaced by Meroitic script. This reform is significant because this script has not yet been deciphered, and because of this, the history of the latter centuries of the kingdom of Kush is obscured. Now, we're only talking about the Ethiopian Kush, the African Kush. We're not talking about the Arabian Kush. It is clear that Kush had armies, but very little is known about their organization. There was obviously a strong central government, but daily administrative practices and even the process of, of succession is unclear. Trade flourished, but precisely how it was conducted is unknown. The names of the rulers of Mero and their probable reigns were pieced together by the archaeologist George A. Reisner, who excavated Napata and Mero and whose conclusions are still accepted for the most part, but even so, there are gaps and contradictions in his narrative, which could only be resolved by a written history of the culture. And so it shows here a stone, a cursive block from Merrow. And basically, it looks like, it looks like Hebrew script. Hamito-Semitic is the same, basically the same language. The Hamites and the Shemites were blood brothers, of course. And uh, Hamito-Semitic is the language that the Shemites and the Hamites spoke before their cultures diverged. Okay, It is this lack of such a history which makes the discussion of the Kandakis of Meros so challenging. It appears that the practice in Mero was that the brother of the king succeeded him, not the king's son. And yet the title of Kandaki seems to have originally referred to the king's mother, which, according to scholar Derek A. Wellsby, designates the mother of the crown prince, i.e., the mother of the next king. Since a Kandaki was also the wife of the reigning king, this interpretation would mean that a king's son would succeed him, and yet this does not seem to be the case. Wellsby writes, quote, the evidence we have suggests that even with a legal succession, there were no hard and fast rules for the choice of the next monarch, and this can only have led to confusion and potential or actual conflict during the transfer of power. So instead of the uh, leadership 
do, uh, going from father to son, as in most cultures, the uh, Ergomenes changed it to uh, either a brother, I think it said a brother, or next of kin after that. Unclear, and I guess if there wasn't a next male kin, then uh, the next female kin would take over. Whether there was such conflict, however, is far from clear. Evidence suggests continuing tension between the throne and the temple, between the king and the priests, and possibly between successors. But no consensus can be reached on its interpretation. It may be that the erasure of the names and destruction of certain monuments was due to a conflict in dynastic succession or to the priests trying to reassert their power, but just as easily may not have anything to do with either. It is also unknown exactly how much influence a queen in Mero had prior to Ergomena's reign. All that is known for certain is that after his reign, some female rulers wielded considerable power, and Mero flourished accordingly. Well, it flourished because it had been a highly advanced culture, thanks to the fact that they were Hamites, Aryan, white, Hamites. Now, the next heading, Candaces of Merrow. So, so far, there's no evidence whatsoever. <laughs> right? Nimblehorse puts in a, uh, a visual image of a black African next to King Tut. And you can see King Tut has a very clearly Nordic face. Actually, looks a lot like uh, the British philosopher. Can't think of his name. <laughs> right? So, uh, it's it's very easy to distinguish a black face from a white face. I mean, the lips, nose, and the receding forehead of the typical black African is uh, immediately obvious. Yeah, and uh, Acts 8.27 clearly says, and had come to Jerusalem for to worship. This, this means, obviously, that he was a descendant of either Ham or, Je or Shem. That's the only possibility, and uh, because and because the Israelites had uh, spread far and wide as far as the River Nile, and we already talked about Elephantine being an Israelite stronghold at the very southern end of Egypt. We're, we're talking about Cush, right at the border of Egypt and Cush. It's quite possible that the eunuch was in fact an Israelite. So now in this article, which is educalife.blogspot.com under the heading The Candaces of Marrow Shana Dakete ruled around 170 BC the first queen to rule independently was Shana Kandeke also given as Shana Daketo who appears in a battle dress leading her armies under her reign Mero expanded its borders, and the economy boomed. She may have performed a religious political function along the lines of the position of God's wife of Amun in Egypt, the female counterpart of the high priest of Amun. Her adherence to the Egyptian traditions is evident in her inscriptions, where she refers to herself as son of Ra, lord of the two lands, beloved of Ma'at which is a common Egyptian designation. Again, we're talking about the similarity between the African Kush, otherwise known as Ethiopia, and Egypt. She is depicted with a young man, clearly a crown prince, who may be her successor, Tani Demani. Dates are unclear, but this is speculation. 
It is also under, uh, unclear whether Tani Damani even was her successor. But here is an image of the Candace Amanashiketo of Mero. And if you look at her profile, she is unmistakably white. In fact, the dress that she is wearing, very similar to India, the Aryan Indians. The person sitting on the throne has a wolf face, so it's impossible to determine what race that person is. But Queen Kandake Amanashaketo is obviously an Aryan. She has very thin lips. She has a very small nose, straight nose, and she's got small eyes in, in both Egyptian and Indian and obviously here Meroitic art. The eyes are also always accentuated. So you can't go by the eyes. But the rest of the face is clearly Aryan. Now, and the person standing behind her is a woman who is a, an attendant standing behind her, her face has been obscured, so it's hard to tell you know, what race it is, but quite obviously she is white. So now, underneath, underneath this major part of the inscription and carving, you will see that there is a bunch of soldiers. The, the, the soldier on the left is clearly Aryan, and he has a beard. Pure black Africans are beardless, just as, as pure Amerindians are beardless. So where'd the beard come from? It's very clear that this person is either a Hamite or a Shemite. And the person behind him, the, the carvings are clear enough to distinguish the race of the person. The two to the right are just gone. They're eroded. Can't tell. But the images that we have that are available in this carving, three clearly Aryan featured people. No doubt about it. Continuing with the text of this uh, article, Amon Iranus, who reigned from 40 to 10 BC, Amon Iranus is best known as the queen who won favorable terms from Augustus Caesar following the conflict known as the Meroitic War between Cush and Rome. Do you think a black African nation <laughs> could uh, get favorable terms from Caesar? I don't think so. They wouldn't be organized enough. The Boer people defeated 20,000 Zulu, and only a handful of them. The war began in response to Kushite raiding parties making incursions into Roman Egypt. Okay, so, I mean, that's pretty aggressive by the Kushites. Uh, they probably should have left well enough alone. Rome had annexed Egypt as a province following the Battle of Actium in 31 BC, and it quickly became one of the new empire's most critical territories as it supplied Rome with an abundance of grain. The Roman prefect in Egypt, Gaius Petronius, responded to the raids by invading Cush around 22 BC and destroying the city of Napata. And this was the city that uh, King uh, Ergomenes had abandoned much earlier to establish the city of Mero. 
Amanorenus was in no way cowed and retaliated with further aggression. She is depicted as a courageous queen, blind in one eye, and a skilled negotiator. Following the conflict, her control of the terms is evidence in Rome's respect in the peace talks and an increase in trade between Rome and Mero. So, Mero had to be still a productive society. As we pointed out above, it was proficient in grain and metal objects and trading in ivory and uh, hides of animals. So, a very flourishing culture still. Amenorrhenus had captured a number of statues from Egypt, among them many of Augustus, which she returned following the peace. But the head of one she buried under the steps of a temple so that people would walk over Augustus on their daily visits. This is the famous Marrowhead now housed in the British Museum. Amanashiketo, little is known of Amanashiketo outside of her lavish grave goods of ornate jewelry. Her tomb was among many in Marrow broken into and destroyed by the notorious treasure hunter Giuseppe Ferlini, who had no interest in history or preservation, was only seeking gold and artifacts he could sell, he must have been a Jew, for a high price. Amonica Chateau, little, uh, so she was one of the last ones to reign. Now, let's, uh, because we're running out of time, this is the person I want to get to, is Amantutere. Reign 25 to 41 A.D. Amantutere is the queen most often identified as the Candace in Acts 8.27. It has been suggested that she may have been a Judahite only based on the passage in the Bible in which her eunuch, encountered by the Apostle Philip, is reading the book of Isaiah. And she might have been. There is no evidence in Marrow itself which supports the existence of a Judahite community. But such communities did exist throughout Cush in small numbers. Remember, they had rebuilt a temple on Elephantine Island several centuries earlier. It's quite possibly that the Judahites were still there in strength. The biblical passage has also been cited to prove that Amantatere ruled alone since it states her eunuch had great authority and was in charge of her treasury. But those statements hardly prove an autonomous queen any more than the eunuch's reading of Isaiah argues for her practice of Mosaism. Nothing is known of her reign, but physical evidence from the period shows a high degree of affluence, which is not uh, demonstrated by any black kingdom ever, okay, except the ones turned over to them by the Rothschilds and other Jewish banksters. And then it goes on to Amanikatashan and other Kandakes of that time. So, folks, based on... And now, if this script is ever diagnosed, I predict that it will reveal their connection to either Ham or to Judah. The script is very much like Hebrew script, very much like Greek, uh, and... Uh, very early scripts of the time period. So it has to, in my opinion, it has to be a version of Hebrew. And they just haven't figured out the connection yet. Probably because the vast majority of scholars think that they were black. <laughs> and that it must be Swahili. Okay. So th this is the level of scholarship that we're having to deal with in the modern era. 
that these people make the wrong assumption that the Egyptians and the Cushites were non-whites, or even assume that they were black Africans, which is a totally incorrect supposition. No truth to this so-called scholarship whatsoever. So folks, this is where our level, again, Christian identity scholarship is miles ahead of anything else in terms of analyzing true history and true religion and prophecy. Nobody can touch us with a 20-foot pole because this is why we're here. This is why the Father put us here is to rekindle our interest in our ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their wives, Sarah, Rebecca, and Jacob's four wives. The favorite was, of course, uh, Rachel, from whom sprang Benjamin, Joseph, and, uh, of course, Joseph's two sons, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. So, this, these are our ancestors. None of these people were black. None of these people were oriental. These people were clearly Caucasoid. As the Bible clearly proves by the very definition of Adam, which means to show blood in the face. So folks, that's today's subject. The eunuch of the book of Acts was clearly a Caucasian. Most likely because the presence of Judah was very clearly on the, along the Nile River and prophesied by Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. It's quite likely that the rulership of the Ethiopian Cush at Mero was Judahite. The next closest possibility is Hamite, son of Cush. Nothing else works. Nothing else fits. And that's our lesson for today. Again, Christian identity scholarship trumps every other field of so-called scholarship. And they're trying to falsify the historical record to favor the Jews, whereas we are simply reporting the facts and reporting the inscriptions and the drawings and the mummies and their DNA as being clearly Caucasian. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition. Folks, we'll see you next weekend. Take care. Yahweh bless. Bye-bye.